Do please take your seats, and as uh, you sit down, uh, you might like to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Judges. As we've been seeing in many ways, it'd be better to be called the book of Saviors, and it's filled with wonderful stories. We're just in the introduction. We did our first uh, sermon last week. We're in the second. We're now in Judges chapter 2, and I'll be reading Again, it's a story, the book of Judges, and when you're looking at the Bible, it's a story. You need to read longer sections so you get a sense of the story, and that's different from preaching uh, Paul's letter to the Romans or something like that, where it's a different kind of literature. This is a story. It's a history, a story. And so we're looking at Judges chapter 2, and I'll be reading, I'll be reading from verse 6 through to chapter 3. Verse 6. And as we come to God's word, let's bow our heads in prayer now. Let's pray. Father God, we've been singing about your word. And we've been praying for those who are being sent out globally to take your word to other countries. And now we come to listen to your word. We pray, Lord, that you would help me to articulate what it is that you have here in the Bible for us in words that please you, in words of clarity and, and uh, encouragement and correction if needed, but honoring to you always. And uh, we pray, uh, Father, for all of us as we uh, listen to your word that the thoughts of our hearts would be pleasing to you and we'd be receptive not distracted, but able to hear not just the content of the story, but a word from you by your Spirit to us this morning in our individual situations. And so we bow before you. We, we are not equal to these things. We pray, Lord, that you would speak and that we would listen. In Jesus' name, amen. So, friends, chapter 2 and beginning at verse 6. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath Heres, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. 
they abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked to had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not, they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge, for the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So they left, the Lord left those nations, not drive them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Now these are the nations the Lord left to test Israel by them, that is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon and Mount Baal Hermon as far as Lebo Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel, to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. Well, this story is addressing a problem that is familiar to all of us. Someone grows up in a religious house. They go to church regularly. Their attendance card at Sunday school is pretty good. They go to a a religious school. They're educated in the things of God. And yet when they come to be an adult, they turn away from their forefathers' faith. Over and over again throughout this passage, that dynamic is indicated. There's a new generation that rises up and they're not serving the Lord. They're serving other gods. 
But there's also a broader pattern here, not just at the individual level, but at the level of society. And that too, I think, is a dynamic that at least many of us are aware of. Ever since the Enlightenment, as it's known, uh, the 18th century movement of secularization and anti-clericalism and anti-God movement that was birthed in the 18th century, the Enlightenment of Voltaire and Rousseau and, and all that, Ever since then, the intellectual elites of what we call Western civilization have concluded that while it is permissible to believe in God in some private personal sphere, faith in God in the public realm, objectively, is, is not rational. And so it's acceptable to have your own personal spirituality in, in, in the view of the dominant philosophy of our Western society today. Oh, yes, you can believe what you like in your own sphere. But to actually think that God truly exists, or that the Bible is God's word, well, there'd be many generations that don't think that. Oh, yeah, the dynamic here is, is familiar, I think, to us. And as we look at it, what we need, though, to grasp is what the Bible here is saying is the real problem and what is the true solution. So, first of all, the, the problem, and then we'll look at the solution. At uh, one level, the problem seems pretty obvious, doesn't it? We're told that they go off after other gods, I and mean, that's how the passage concludes. They serve their gods. They go off after the, the Baals and uh, Ashtoreth. A Baal was the Canaanite fertility god of harvest and children. And Ashtoreth was his female consort and the worship of Baal in the ancient world in those times involved various adulterous and licentious practices of one kind or another there's actually good evidence that from this region of the world at least the worship of Baal also involved the sacrifice of children And what was going on in some way or other, it's obvious in the text, is that the people of Israel, while they acknowledged that God was somehow still their God, they now were having other gods. They probably were becoming what we might call polytheistic or pluralistic or there are many different paths up the mountain. And yes, they had God on one side, but also Baal and Ashtoreth. Uh, perhaps the sexual licentiousness of Baal and Ashtoreth worship was attractive to the younger generation. 
Maybe the idea of their father's faith, that God had actually rescued people from Egypt and brought them into the promised land, seemed intellectually incredible. Maybe it was just easier to go with the flow of the cultures around. What was going on was fairly obvious. They were becoming worshippers of other gods. But the real question when we think of what the real problem is, is not what was going on, but why. And that, the the Bible is very clear about here. It, it, It tells us in verse 10. There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. There are two aspects to that. The knowledge of God and then what the work or the deed in the singular that he had done. Uh, To know the Lord is a matter of personal relationship. The author of Judges isn't saying they didn't have enough information about God. What he's saying is they didn't know God. It's the same word that is used of the intimacy between a husband and wife. They didn't know God. But not only did they not have a personal relationship with God, they also didn't know what he had done. The deed that he had done, referring, I think, almost certainly to the great deed that he had done when he had rescued Israel from Egypt. That deed. In other words, the real root of the problem was they didn't have a personal relationship with God and they didn't think they were rescued people. They didn't know God and they didn't know the gospel. For them, it was just rules. And religion. I went down uh, to Chicago this week on the train, and before I got on the train, I had a meeting down in Chicago with some uh, a few Christian leaders. And I was before I got on the train, I was just sitting there outside waiting. And a chap came up to me to chat to me, and I asked him what he was doing. And he's a lawyer, and. I said, I, I almost became a lawyer. And then he said, well, you saw, you decided to become an honest man instead of being a lawyer. And we sort of joked together, you know. And then he, it became obvious he was kind of asking me what I did. And I said, well, I'm a pastor. And, and he said, I'm not religious. And I said, nor am I. I said, actually, religious institutions are filled with human dynamics, aren't they? I mean, they are. We're humans. And there can be problems in religious institutions, which is why we need to constantly come back to Jesus and his word by his spirit. But I said, whatever I may think about religious institutions, Jesus is great. And then he went off to talk to someone else. But they didn't know that. They didn't know the Lord. And they didn't think they were rescued people. That's the tendency, isn't it? When a generation grows up that rejects God, they're rejecting the rules 
the system, the institution. They don't have a, a personal relationship with the living God of the universe and they don't feel like they're rescued people. The rescue from Egypt fulfilled in the rescue that God does in Jesus at the cross. And so a new generation rises up. In America, there was a survey done in uh, 2021 uh, by Arizona Christian University, uh, Barna uh, did it, that concluded that 88% or so of Americans have a worldview that is what they called syncretistic. In other words, it's not just God, it's this other religion, this other faith. And 88%, it's the, 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 not just the Lord, but also Baal and the Ashtoreths and every different path up the mountain. But behind that is a misunderstanding, a lack of grasp of what is truly on offer, which is a personal encounter with God and to be rescued. And so this generation rises up. It isn't marketers who were the first to invent the idea of not just individuals but generations. God addresses them not as individuals but as a generation. Uh, These are not the boomers or Gen X or millennials or Gen Z or whatever the latest one is. I I was thinking how I would characterize this generation here. I think I would call them Generation Flaky. They were a weather vane, not a sail. Wherever the wind of the culture was blowing, they would turn that way. They didn't put up their sail to catch the wind and redirect it towards God. They were a thermometer recording the temperature of contemporary ideas, not a thermostat regulating those ideas and bringing them back to true faith. You know, you can inherit from your parents their characteristics, but not their character. You can inherit from your parents uh, a genetic code, but every generation must experience regeneration themselves. Oh, there is a word here for parents to be committed to training up the the next generation. But it it is fascinating to me, and of course we must be committed to doing that, but it is fascinating to me that the, the, the predominance of the criticisms in the passage is not for the parents, but for the children. I've come across children who have been trained in the most awful ways by their parents who love Jesus and follow him. By contrast, I've come across other children grown up who come from what, what on the surface seem to me to be amazing homes but reject God. No, it's, it's down to each of us. Our choice to know the Lord and what he has done. 
Well, they didn't, and that was the problem. What then is the solution? Well, the solution is uh, very clearly presented in the passage in a number of different ways, but the basic idea is, is, is right on the surface there, and there's, there's two, kind, two aspects to the solution that God presents. So verse 16, here's the solution that, that, that God brings about. The Lord raises up judges who save them out of the hand of those who plundered them. I've said several times in this series that when it's the book of Judges should really be called the book of saviors, and this is one of the reasons why, and you'll find out more and more as you go through it. In, in English language, a judge is someone who sits behind a big desk and, and pronounces judgment on, on criminals as to whether they've done something wrong or not or releases them. That's a judge. But these judges, though they had some aspects of that, were, were not really like that at all. They were savior figures sent by God to rescue God's people. Little small s saviors the lord that's part of the solution god raises up judges to save them uh, when they got into difficulty it says they were in terrible distress god raises up saviors he still does today you know maybe you feel stuck God still sends an angel of mercy. He still sends friends to care for you. He still sends preachers to preach to you. He still sends a church to be a family for you. Part of his solution was sending out, uh, raising up saviors. But there's another aspect to his solution too. Uh, not just saviors, but tests. He says, uh, verse 21, I'll no longer drive out before them any of uh, the nations that Joshua left when he died. In order to test Israel by them, whether they will uh, take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. Fascinating, isn't it? So the reason why God did not drive out the nations before God's people was to test them, it says uh, later, so they would learn the way of warfare, uh, which in the Old Testament was predominantly trusting that God is the God who would give them the battle. They had to learn what it meant to trust God. It was to test them. In a very different way, we're not in Old Testament Israel, of course. We're in the New Testament uh, time of the church of all nations. And we, the church doesn't go to physical war anymore. We, though still God does send us uh, tests. The Bible calls it discipline. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? 
If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respect them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. See, maybe you're not stuck. Maybe you're sinning. All Christians do, you know. Part of the sign of being a Christian is a fight against sin. In this world, before we go to heaven, every Christian is still fighting against sin. If if you weren't fighting against sin, you wouldn't be a Christian. You'd just be going with your own internal desires. Every Christian does sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, as John puts it in 1 John. And when we sin, God will at times, like a heavenly father, come to us and uh, correct us so that we might learn to follow him in holiness. So here's what, what God does. Here's the dynamic. He sends saviors, and then when they reject the message of the saviors, he has tests to bring them back to cry out to God for mercy again. And there's a similar sort of pattern in the New Testament. I was trying to think through how to illustrate this. I remember when our children were young, and the, 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 your, you, when a child is learning to ride a bicycle, the, uh, the first, at least when we, were, when we had children, when they were young, learning to ride a bicycle, the first of all, they have stabilizers on, their, on the, the back of their bike that allows them to ride the bike without falling off. But at some point, they get to the moment where it's time for the stabilizers to come off, and you sort of high, hold the back of the bicycle and give them a push and let them go. And they try, and they fall down. And Well, a, a good father will go along and kind of dust them off and say, are you okay? I hope you haven't been hurt. Do you want to try again? Yeah, I want to try again. And then let them take the test again to learn how to ride a bike something like that goes on throughout our lives the Lord presents us with opportunities to learn and grow and develop as his people and become more what he wants us to be and and then we mess up he sends a savior to pick us up and dust us off and put us back on our bike and then keep on going try again That sort of pattern is established here in the Old Testament and then in a similar sort of way it happens in the New Testament. But of course it didn't work. There are 12 different saviors in the book of Judges all with different degrees of inadequacy. Uh, someone came up to me after the service last week and said, I'm so pleased you're doing Judges. Will you do Ehud? I said, oh, you can't avoid Ehud. And we'll find out when we get to him just what an interesting, complicated character was that saviour. 
But it didn't work. They kept on going back, and we're told that every time they they ignored the saviors, and then they, when verse nineteen, whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers. The spiral kept on going down until right at the end, as we've seen last week. The passion of the book of Judges is summarized right at the end of the book of Judges, when it says, "In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. They didn't know God, and they didn't know what He had done, and therefore they did whatever they wanted." Generation Me, as uh, Jean, the sociologist Jean Twenge uh, put it in one of her books. So it didn't work. And therefore God sent the Savior. The great key of reading the Old Testament is to read it as a story as part of God's history of salvation that is fulfilled in Christ at the cross. Samson wasn't the Savior, nor was Gideon, nor was Ehud. And then Jesus came and took Not just the sufferings of the world, but the sin of which the sufferings are the diagnostic proof that there is something wrong with our world. But of course you might say to me, well, that's all very well, but it seems extraordinary to me. I mean, here we are in the 21st century, and we're looking at a book that has a description of a terrorist army invading another country and then being rebuked for not doing it properly. And we're reading this ancient text, which surely has all sorts of intellectual problems about its historicity. What is more, you're defending the, the, the biblical idea of church and Christianity, and we all know there's all sorts of problems with churches these days. Well, if you feel something like that, I have a great deal of sympathy with you. And I'm not alone. I first came across this with a a journalist called William Lobdale, who in the early 2000s had a born-again experience of of Jesus and then took the faith-reporting job at the LA Times to be a witness to Jesus. And then went around reporting on on church stuff. And as he reported on church stuff, he became more and more disillusioned. There was the Catholic priest abuse scandal. Well, that was bad. And then he started to get into all the prosperity gospel stuff and watch the money they were raking in off the false promises of faith healing to these people who died trusting them, rejecting medicine, and then flying around in their Lear jets around the world, in their mansions in Southern California. 
and he lost his faith. Oh, I have a great deal of sympathy. You don't have to tell a pastor that there are problems in churches. But at the end of the day, I wrestle with God. And I think that makes all the difference. There are intellectual answers to the historical challenges of Scripture. There are scholars who hold their faith with integrity. There are churches and Christians who are feeding the homeless and rescuing child prostitutes from Europe and Asia. If you come across a bad apple, it doesn't mean you never eat apples again. If you come across a bad medical doctor, you don't give up on medicine. You look for the real thing. To know God personally. That's 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 the, the distinguishing piece, isn't it? actually have a personal encounter with him. You can inherit the characteristics of your parents, but not their moral character. Every generation must experience regeneration, new birth, spiritual life. Faith. What's the old phrase? God has no grandchildren. We each must trust him ourselves. And to do that today. And not rely on your forefathers' faith. Well, it's a relevant book and a relevant story, and let's bow our heads then in prayer together. Our Father God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you how it is rooted in time, but is timeless. We pray, Father, that you would raise us up as a generation that is committed to you, with wisdom and spiritual integrity and grace and love that can reach the nations for Jesus, for you, Lord. Help us, uh, Father, if we are parents, to do a good job of, of training our children. Help us, Lord, if we are children and perhaps disappointed by something we experience from our parents, children of Christian homes, to not give up on you because of that, but to seek to know you ourselves. We pray, Lord, that by your Spirit you would encounter us this morning. 
Give us new life. That we might be those who know you and rejoice in the rescue that you have done for us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.